0: the echo chamber brought to you by the homes reports
1: and produced by the international broadcast specialist marketeers
0: sponsored by the bullet group putting you in tomorrow's conversations today
1: Hi everyone, welcome to the Echo Chamber, I'm Maya Pavinska sims and I'm here in London with Matt Peacock, a sustainable business expert and a former Group Director of Corporate Affairs at Vodafone, and the newest partner to join Blurred, the agency set up by Nick Govia, Katie Stoliday and Stu Lambert at the end of 2018. Matt, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Um, Now, a couple of months ago, I I just want to go back in time slightly, Blurred pledged to only work with clients who are working towards the global goals. Was that part of the attraction on coming board and making your first leap into agency life? Uh,
0: definitely part of it because I think it's part of why the the firm is different to pretty much any other advisory firm I've come across mm. in my career. Um, the business is purpose-driven, has a very strong sense of uh, the business world changing and the advisory needs of business changing and the old boundaries between uh, different disciplines providing different bits of advice yeah. – for different uh, challenges, uh, no longer applying, and that actually, what clients want. And I speak as a you know twenty-plus year client in in multinational life. What clients want is people who bring a holistic sense of the solutions to uh, very broad and complex challenges. Mm. Um, and at the moment, what happens in the advisory world is that you have a, a complex problem, and you have to assemble a team of niche experts from different sources uh, whether it's uh, lawyers or whether it's people who come out of an investment investment or banking background or whether it's um, compliance experts in specific disciplines communications experts and so on and so forth and you as the client have to sit across all of that Mm. but you're on your own right okay yeah and um, the attraction for me was was uh, was largely that this is a business that from the outset recognizes that the client need has changed, the yeah. world is more complicated, and that what clients want, and this resonated with me as a client, is very senior advice that takes account of all the full panoply of risks and the full panoply of uh, of stakeholder perceptions that come into play when a company has an opportunity, it wants to seize or when a company is in trouble. And as a part of that, rooting that in this sense of the SDGs, the global goals, as being critical for the future of business. And also, as an even bigger part of that, understanding that capitalism is in crisis Mm. and that business leaders are seriously concerned about this growing gulf between public expectation and public belief in market mechanisms and the founding principles of capitalism and what business is doing today. So all of that, my sense when I first met Nick and when I met the team was All of that has essentially underpinned the creation of this new agency, which I found very exciting.
1: Absolutely. And just go back a little bit further. How did you just uh, tell me about your career so far and how you developed that real interest in sustainable business?
0: Um, Well, I I mean, to be honest, I've always had a very close personal interest in, in several of the core elements of ESG. So if you take human rights, which is part of the S of the ESG, which we'll perhaps talk about a bit later on. Right the way back to when I was a, a BBC reporter, I was very, very interested as a reporter working on assignments all over the place in in the, 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 the dimensions of human rights as they play out on the ground. Okay. What actually happens um, when, um, when people and when societies are under tremendous pressure, when fundamental rights are being uh, eroded very rapidly yeah. – um, in sectarian conflict for example so understanding human rights how, how it plays out in the world has been something that's run all the way through my working life I've always been interested and in, always read about it, always thought about it um, and the environmental aspects, so so ecology and climate aspects of the E of ESG so the, the kind of core of sustainability as most people understand it I've been working on really since I, I went into the oil and gas business which was 15 years ago or so now um, where, um, in order to effectively protect the company's license to operate mm. and have a positive engagement with all the stakeholders that are affected by an upstream um, uh, exploration production company, as BG Group was that I worked for, you absolutely have to, you had to understand the ecological and environmental impacts and issues and mitigations required in order to have a meaningful conversation with the people who are affected by your mm. actions as a business. So. It's just these things have always fascinated me all the way through my working life
1: yeah and there's a there's there's an interesting tension there, particularly where you're working for a more controversial client, like in the energy sector isn't there between they're getting the balance right between the the needs and function and purpose of that that company and what the 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 needs are of the all its stakeholders around it
0: yeah no, absolutely because you know you you have to you have to make money for your investors, mm. you have to deliver a profit for a business profits are like breathing without profits, you don't exist, clearly. But you also have equally important obligations. And I've always believed they are genuinely equally important. Mm. And the businesses I've worked for, I've, in a sense, wanted to work for those businesses because they've also believed this. You also have equally important obligations to all the other people around you who are affected by what you do. From what in the oil and gas businesses we used to call the fence line community issue. So literally the people living next door to the gas plant or the refinery or, or whatever it is right the way through to um, the the national social socioeconomic implications of what you do as a company where when you are a major investor in that country and where your decisions have a wider impact on the economy of that country which is very much the case for an oil and gas major particularly in an emerging market country mm. I've always been interested in this and I've always been attracted to companies that understand the tension between the investment and financial dimension, and the broader social dimension, and are serious about taking their responsibilities seriously yeah. and and doing the right
1: thing. Well, it's a it's arguably a, a meteor challenge, isn't it, for a comms professional as well, rather than. Uh, somebody who isn't operating in a particularly controversial sector who declares a purpose and can just run with it with a slightly less potential conflict?
0: Um, Possibly. I I mean, to be honest, all companies, big and small, have significant what we would now call ESG challenges. Uh, They may not recognise they have those challenges. They may not recognise what they need to do to mitigate the risks associated with that, but they, they all have them. I mean, from, you know, something as simple as not really understanding the human rights risks in your supply chain, mm. the fact that you're procuring procuring products and components from factories that use child labour, um, right the way through to uh, what you're doing within your own workplace about ensuring that your people are well protected, feel nurtured and supported, and so forth. Doesn't matter whether you're big or small. Doesn't matter what sector you're in that those are live issues for you. Mm. And then, of course, for everybody, climate change and energy use, the decisions you make about where the energy that you use comes from, yeah. uh, water use, how you manage waste. All these things affect big and small in all sectors, and they're they're really tricky issues if you don't address them properly.
1: But how well understood do you think that ESG, um, environmental, social and uh environmental and social governance is understood yeah environmental
0: social governance if you put a line between each of them okay yeah. <laughs>
1: it's it's not that well understood yeah in the way that you understand it
0: so so this is so esg is both brand new and not new at all okay so the the individual parts of esg so environmental then a space social then a space governance then a, okay. then a space um uh, have been around in business forever. So uh, if you take the environmental bit of ESG, so in the the obligations that a business has to be responsible with regards to the environment within which it operates, its ecological impacts and so forth, this this is centuries mm. old. Mm. Actually, if you go back to the very, very first, the dawn of regulation around water, around protecting waterways. Um, so these are, that's not a new concept. Climate change and the obligations that companies have to reduce their carbon impact, that's much more recent, but still 20 plus years old. The S bit of ESG, the social bit, um, is essentially two things. It's uh, workplace, so it's how you treat your people, how you manage the workforce, uh, how you deal with issues of workforce composition, so diversity and inclusion, for example, and how you keep your people safe and how you treat them. And human rights, so the impact of your business in a human rights context. Um, that's the S. Those are not new things either. No. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the early scandals around multinationals in human rights date back to the 1970s yeah. in, in the modern era. Uh, the, the issues around uh, companies having obligations with regard to their workforce. Really date back to the Factory Act of 1802. Oh,
1: well, absolutely! Yeah? yeah, so
0: these are these are not mm. new things. Governance, corporate governance, um, again, it's not new. So, so the obligations that companies have towards their shareholders, they've been around forever in various forms. The sense that a company has an obligation to treat its shareholders fairly and be transparent in its dealings with shareholders, that's kind of underpins the foundations of you know modern capital markets. Um, And business integrity, which is the other part of the G, so anti-bribery measures, uh, anti-money laundering measures, uh, transparency around political engagement and lobbying and so forth. Again, not really new. So the individual bits have been around for a long time. The new thing is the amalgamation. Okay. It's bringing them together into one single concept. Um, It's not that new as a coinage, by the way, ESG. As a, as a term of art, has been around for 16 years, roughly. But it's only really hit the mainstream in the last two years. But the amalgamation of these three things into one single concept of ESG, that is new. And I think the reason why that's happened is quite powerful. ESG risks, rec- mitigation of ESG risks, identifying and mitigating, requires a company to think differently. When businesses look at risk... Traditionally, risk is something that comes from the outside in. It's what the world can do to you. It's what the market can do to you, it's what consumer trends can do to you, it's what technology disruption can do to you as a company. ESG is all about what you can do to others. Okay. It's it's inside out. It flips it. It's what are the harms that you can cause to the environment? What are the harms you can cause to the you know to the ecology around you? What are the harms you can cause to people? What are the harms you can cause to your shareholders? Mm. Yeah. So it requires a different mindset as a company. And that's a very powerful thing.
1: It is. And I I think we often talk about um, we talk about benefits of being conscious and active in these areas of purpose and sustainability and ESG. What we don't always talk about is taking the step back in and looking at what the risks and harms are that have to be mitigated before the benefits can kick in. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, in very crude and simple terms, my approach to this is is, um, that ESG and purpose, so social purpose, are intrinsically linked because you cannot credibly talk about doing good until you can credibly talk about how you do no harm. Okay. You have to prove you do no harm before you can prove that you do good. It's a Basic, fundamental aspects. That's of an
1: uncomfortable. That's an uncomfortable truth to yes. head off and be transparent about. I yes, know, it is. Yes,
0: But but the, one of the reasons why the ESG movement is so powerful is that it is uncomfortable. It requires, as I say, a fundamental rewiring of how businesses think, and that's one of the reasons why it's captured the imagination of mm. business leaders, as we saw in Davos uh, extensively and and elsewhere, because. It's emerging at a point where capitalism is in crisis, where public trust in all business, but particularly large business, it is at a shocking historic low and belief in the notion of business being a force for good is at a low. So this movement that says, well, hang on, we now need to look at the world. We need to look at ourselves as the world looks at us and we need to assess our negative impacts on the outside world as the outside world Mm. would assess them. Has come along in the nick of time, really. Mm. If you think about it in in, in the bigger picture,
1: um, and there's also the um, the element that we hear a lot about as well of woke washing, purpose washing, green washing. Because yep. uh, along with that greater understanding by everybody involved, all stakeholders, including consumers, there comes uh, an increased cynicism.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so, how do
1: you tackle that? How do you how do you get that right?
0: So, so, and and the cynicism is well founded and it's earned. Okay, because. Um, my my view is that if a company starts with its purpose mm. and just with its purpose, it ends up going in a place where it starts talking about brand with purpose. Right. And it becomes essentially a branding and mission statement and a strap line exercise. Yeah. But if it hasn't done the prior work around essentially the ESG dimension, what are the negatives that we need to identify, mitigate, be transparent about, and fix, ideally, where we can, if it hasn't done that first, Mm -hmm. people are not stupid. Consumers are not stupid. (laughs) Our stakeholders are not stupid. They are are the most informed they've ever been in human history, Mm. largely because of social media. And you will be called out. So you can say, we exist to do X, Y, Z, that's really good, that will make the world better. Yeah. The world will instantly turn around and say, yes, but what hang on, what about the fact that you're, you know, destroying waterways or your, you know, air pollution or what about that human rights thing that we keep on reading about or whatever it is, and will not believe that you're making a positive contribution to society, which is what purpose should be about, because you're not seriously addressing your unintentional negative contribution to society first.
1: And do CEOs get this? When you talk to boards, are are they starting? Is the penny dropping? Yes, It feels like this is quite a recent thing.
0: Yeah, there's a a momentum around this, which I think is one of the most significant things that's happened in modern business in half a century, Mm. in my lifetime. Um, And it's playing out in real time. 2020 is the year of the tipping point, Mm. where I, I, I don't know of many large company boards that are not very, very focused Hugely focused on ESG, yeah. and obviously BlackRock and Larry Fink's letter brought that into sharp relief absolutely. this year. But it's not the first time that Larry Fink has said it. By the way, he's been writing those letters for three years, but this is the first. He I has see. We, he haven't, has. we haven't heard of the
1: first. Two yeah, years no, 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 no. no. I,
0: I speak as a former recipient, yeah. uh, as in forwarded on to me internally of the letters. So, so, so Larry Fink is not alone in this, by the way. But Larry Fink has absolutely identified. This sort of systemic risk to mm. public confidence in capitalism, uh, going back a while now, mm. but this is the this year. His letter was different to previous letters, in my view, because it actually sharpened the tone.
1: Okay, in it was, what way? It was
0: a much more direct statement that if you, as a company, do not get ESG, and, and his letter to clients actually talked about ESG, if you do not get ESG, you're going to have a problem, because um, paraphrasing the letter. Essentially, what BlackRock do now around assessing ESG leaders, uh, so companies have strong ESG records, they will essentially be applying that filter, those criteria, to all companies. Right. Yeah? yeah. So if you as a company are not focused on the identification and mitigation of your ESG risks, actually, you'll end up an outlier really, mm-hmm. really quickly. And other, other big funds are doing the same thing. Um, and uh, certainly, I know of quite a few large company, public company boards, who are themselves, even if they haven't received the letter, because obviously BlackRock don't own everybody. They, <laughs> yeah. you know, there is a very, very strong sense yeah. that the tide is turning rapidly. Business Roundtable in the US is another example. Oh, gosh, yes, of course. Um, very important. First time mm. since the early nineteen seventies. That they've rewritten their sort of their guiding principles for business leaders, and this is the club of U.S. CEOs, 140 CEOs, I think it is now. Essentially, every major business leader in the U.S. is effectively a member of the Business Roundtable. The Business Roundtable rewriting its principles to make it clear that that shareholders are one of many stakeholders and companies have to take all stakeholder issues and dimensions into account in their business decisions. That's also another moment. And that was only August of last year, right? This is all very recent.
1: Um, I I, I was in Davos last week and there was a lot of chat, obviously, about sustainability and purpose. And it felt to me that exactly as you've been saying the tipping point has come about through something that was labeled conscious capitalism in yep. some circles or stakeholder capitalism in others with reference to the business roundtable shift in emphasis and it, i mean it was inevitable that money was going to be the driving factor yeah. i guess in, yes. in businesses kind of yeah. shifting from yes, a, right. a csr model to a um uh, investors are not going to continue to hold the business up if or invest in us yeah um if we don't uh, shift. Do you think it matters that 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 capitalism has actually finally, in a in, almost in a virtuous circle, become the driver of businesses um, doing better in the world? It Matters
0: massively. Mm. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, to be glib potentially about this, capitalism causes problem,
1: mm.
0: and capitalism can fix this problem. Yeah. Yeah. Secondly, as a believer in capitalism and market forces as the sort of you know the best model available than all the other alternatives that have been tried, um, one of the great values and virtues of capitalism is that it's endlessly flexible Mm. and adaptable. And how companies think, and how and how the owners of companies think, and the, the 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 as it were the interface between business and society is always changing yeah. it's always flexing and it can change very quickly i mean businesses can change faster than governments yes. yeah businesses can change Absolutely. faster than many belief political belief systems so um i'm actually quite optimistic about yeah. this right <laughs> i'm actually optimistic that there's a very good reason why very large companies and the investors in those large companies are serious about engineering radical change in how companies operate and mm. how they address this risk, these risks these risks because first of all, the threat, the consequences, of them not doing that are genuine and severe. Yeah. Yeah. Climate change is the thing that's brought this into sharp relief for everyone. It's a clear and present danger yeah. for all businesses. For the world's on for, fire. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. The whole, you know, the whole of humanity. But it's it's a real operational risk yeah. for many businesses. Absolutely. Um, uh, but I would also say that actually human rights is is almost equal to climate change mm-hmm. as a clear and present danger for many businesses. There are significant human rights issues for many companies, certainly in their supply chains, but, but um, for for quite a lot of companies actually even closer to the core business operations. Um, and a, 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 a growing public expectation that companies are serious about human rights risk. Yeah. I'd say that's actually, to my mind, comparable to climate change as a Key um, issue for businesses to address, but the point is they can address it. The point is that, that that large companies and small companies have within themselves the means quite quickly to re-engineer what they do and how they work, how they're held to account, yeah. what the expectations of their owners, the shareholders, are, um, in a way that actually quite quickly fundamentally addresses some of the most pressing yeah. challenges we face as a, as, a, as a you know as humanity on this planet, particularly around climate change, we're actually. I am truly optimistic that the solutions exist and can be delivered and will be delivered in time because it's strongly in the interest of business to do so.
1: I I, I wouldn't have said this two weeks ago if we'd had this chat then, but having coming back from the mountain – and heard all the chat. I have to say, I 100% agree with you. I came back from Davos feeling more hopeful about big real-world stuff than mm. I have in a while. Because, you know, as a, as a consumer, even as a journalist, you view things through the the filter of a a press that isn't always fully informed itself. Mm. Um, where a negative headline is a better headline, etc., yeah, yeah. etc. And I came back feeling actually hearing businesses talk about. And we had, we we saw one panel session where they're talking about purpose being passé in the sense that if you're talking about one business trying to manifest its purpose yeah. for its own ends, yeah. that we're already past that point. It's got to be industries working together yeah. and working together with license from government and working together with credibility and yeah. support from NGOs. And that whole sense that we have reached a point where that is completely OK, that NGOs aren't seen as selling out if they're working with business, yeah, yeah, where so. business isn't seen as. But as trying to look good by working with governments and NGOs. It's genuinely we're we're at the point now, guys, where the business has got the money, it's got the intellectual firepower, yeah. Yeah. NGOs have got the credibility, governments have got the license. Yeah. And everyone working together is going to solve these problems. Yes. And it was it was truly hopeful. I came back feeling quite good about it. Yeah, so actually. look, I
0: mean, in my own immediate personal experience, when I was at Vodafone, my team and I presented a business case to to RXCo. Um, to decarbonize the company, okay. to move Vodafone to 100% renewable electricity by 2025. And I began that by saying business case. Yeah, It wasn't, I mean, clearly there's a moral case. There's, you know, we have a climate emergency, okay? So that the, there's no debate about the moral dimension. But my view is that if you take an ultimately an ESG objective and you present it as a P and L objective. In other words, you present it as something that's integral to the financial health of the company over the long run. Mm. Um, it's a no-brainer for a company to do it. So in the case of Vodafone, my, what my team and I demonstrated, and it wasn't difficult to do, is that if you take a forward view of energy costs and the, um, the telecoms industry, and in fact, the ICT sector generally, are they're very intensive energy users, yeah. huge amounts of electricity. If you take a forward view of cost of electricity, which in Vodafone's case was around 1.1 billion euros a year was being spent on electricity, something in that region. And you fast forward into the future and you look at what will happen to energy costs buying this stuff from whatever power generator, you know, generation company is available. So whether it's fossil fuels or not, whatever, you just buy it on the market. You take a longer term view of what will happen in the future. With carbon pricing, with the potential for energy shocks, oil shocks, mm. you know, in, in, through something happening in the Middle East or whatever. If you take a forward view over a sort of six, seven, eight-year period of what that cost curve looks like, and then compare it with the cost of entering into a ten-year power purchase agreement with a renewable power generation company or multiple multiple countries,
1: mm-hmm.
0: actually, the business case for moving to renewable power, was really strong.
1: Okay, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, and that is the case for a lot of companies. Mm. You, can ta- you can take other equivalents in other industries where you look at the cost of not doing something over time versus the cost benefit of moving to an alternative that it, that is much better for ecology, much better for energy, climate, um, uh, or much better from a human rights perspective, mm. potentially. you it's Often it, it's actually... It's quite straightforward if you do the analysis to present a business case that says, why would we not do this yeah. purely from the P&L, quite an apart from the fact that it's, the, that it's something we should do as a responsible company anyway. And that was my experience just using that renewable um, uh, energy example mm. to illustrate it. I've come across other examples in other industries and other companies where the same is true. And probably the, you know, the meta example that everyone talks about is Unilever. That, of that's absolutely the perspective that that um, the Unilever board took and is still taking, which says, actually, we become a better business with a stronger P and L by delivering the Sustainable um, Living Plan. Yeah, yeah, and that that really, I think, is the other big difference about the conversations you'll have heard in Davos. Is it's it's not what do we need to do to make the world like us? No,
1: absolutely. It's what
0: do we need to do that actually makes up genuinely makes our businesses stronger. From, from an absolute core P&L perspective mm. that will also, you know, achieve the outcomes that, that the whole of humanity wants from us.
1: So what's – just bring this back to our audience, what's the comms, PR, corporate affairs role in all of this?
0: Okay, so – I think, first of all, understand it, mm. to be blunt. So uh, understanding ESG, to my mind, is is it's going to become a prerequisite for anyone in the comms and corporate affairs world mm. in the same way that sort of, you know, understanding how to read an annual report is. OK, if you need to understand that the language of risk and mitigation around the E and the S and the G, I, I mean, anyone coming into the profession now, I think, should should be immersed in that i mean i lecture on esg and purpose at business schools
1: okay and what Uh, kind of response do you get when you uh, huge interest okay
0: huge huge interest and um uh, the the people i speak to who are you know they're the next generation of ceos and cfos okay they absolutely recognize that esg will define the rest of their working lives
1: yeah
0: and and these are people in their sort of late 20s through to mid late 30s right so those are the CEOs and CFOs of the future. Therefore, the corporate affairs directors and the senior advisors of the future who are in the profession now need to keep track with that, yeah. I would say. So the first thing is, is sort of understand it. The second thing, and this is, I think, a huge opportunity for our profession as communicators and corporate affairs people – is that you know back to my point earlier about ESG requiring a rewiring of how you look at the world yeah. ESG is all about what does the world think of us what's the world worried about what do we need to do to address the world's perceptions of our negative impacts well that's what comms people do
1: yeah
0: that's that's what comms is about yeah. we we are the mirror to the organisation we are the corporate conscience you know go back to dubenais and all the rest of it um that's that's our great strength. Our great strength is saying to the organization, this is what the world thinks. This is what the world's worried about. And this is what we need to do to mm. address that. So in a curious way, ESG doesn't have a single owner in companies at the moment. The G is sort of the company secretary general counsel. It's legal. Yeah, The S is a mixture of HR and for human... Uh, uh, from a human rights perspective, it's often a legal risk yeah. and an operational risk, and the E is very often it's a sustainability team, right? Okay. But there's no single point owner for ESG on the client side. My view is that in the future, ESG should be owned by corporate affairs and communications okay. because the mindset that is required to do it well is is the mindset that we all bring to this profession.
1: Yeah, so there's a real opportunity here for the industry hugely. Okay, but it comes down to understanding it. You've the got first to, place. It does. And you know,
0: it's it there are some technical details you need to understand. You yeah. need to understand some of the history and some of the, the regulatory frameworks yeah. and all of it that sit around it. But that's no different to if you work in financial communications understanding the UK Takeover Code and how the panel works. Mm. It's 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 having an immersion in a level of technical skills so you can speak the language and provide the right advice. Yeah, it's absolutely. a craft skill thing. It's not insurmountable.
1: No, and same with healthcare as well. Yeah, yeah, and
0: then you've got sector knowledge as, yeah. as well. So, you know, understanding the language of telecoms or understanding the language of um, oil and gas or farmer or whatever it is. It's no different. It's, it's a new skill set, mm. but it is one that fundamentally plays to the strengths of people who come into a profession with a, an innate sense that their job is to represent the world to the company mm. as well as represent the company to the world. So
1: it's internal and external storytelling. Oh, uh,
0: yes, absolutely. I mean, And the other dimension to all of this, by the way, is companies that don't do this lose the workforce. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean a like small
1: matter of talent. Yeah, there's, well, <laughs> not just
0: talent, motivation, belief, yeah. confidence. You know, I mean, look at what's happened to a number of big US tech firms just mm. in recent weeks on climate change. And the sense from very junior people in these organizations that they are really frustrated their companies are not doing enough. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a small Taste of what I think lies ahead for companies that don't deal with this.
1: Yeah, we've talked about employee activism a lot over the past it's, few months. It's definitely a thing, even within the, our industry as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know,
0: back back to blurred. And your opening question about what, why was I attracted to blurred? The fact that blurred uh, have focused on the SDGs as, as a as a key a key decision making process yeah. for who who the, the, the who we, we as a business want to work hmm. with. That's a small example of the same thing, right? Yeah. Um, I think we'll see a great deal more of that. And again, it's another reason. And you know, I don't know if you heard this in the conversations in Davos, but I hear it a lot. That's another reason why boards and excos are so focused on this. They are genuinely worried about losing the trust and confidence of mm. their own people, quite apart from society at large.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And trust, as we've seen from the latest Edelman yeah. Trust Barometer, yeah. Absolutely. Is still going down yeah and
0: not and not just trust in business trust in the everything trust in capitalism trust in democracy yeah i
1: know it's it's all of which flows from
0: the same thing it all comes from it all comes from to my mind very large and powerful companies Mm. as well as smaller ones who work with those large companies and some of the large companies are in their own way as powerful as governments Mm. insufficiently addressing the the cluster of risks we call esg to the point where people no longer believe in them
1: I was in an interesting round table last week, which Freud's were chairing. And um, there was one guy, it, it was all, it was all um, kind of uh, you know behind closed doors. So I can't say who it was. But one guy said, let's make this the story. The narrative around climate change in particular is either based on fear or trying to motivate people. And we know that that doesn't work. Why don't we change the narrative and make it the moment we pulled down, pulled back from the brink, the moment that we realised we had to all pull together as business, yeah. governments, and and charities and individuals to to literally pull humanity back from the brink? And yeah. that's a much more powerful narrative. And that felt really, that really, really resonated with me. That yeah. felt quite true. Yeah,
0: and I, I agree with that. I mean, I I, I take a sort of slightly more. Um, uh, how can I put this? A slightly more sort of prosaic and finance-oriented view on this, yeah. which is
1: so- this is a room full of creative. Yeah, aspects. no, sure, which is fine, which is all good.
0: Um but companies are going to make a lot of money in the future by being good yeah. and solving these issues. And uh more and more companies are realizing that and doing something about it. Yeah. So, for example, to pick, pick one example at random, Volkswagen saying that. Nine years from now, they will only produce electric vehicles. They will not produce a hydrocarbon engine vehicle in the range nine years from now. In order for that to happen, all of their major home markets need to have street side infrastructure to charge electric vehicles. In order for that to happen... Germany and France and the major economies of Europe need to move into the production of electronics and battery technology that right now is pretty much 90 percent produced in China. Yeah. OK. So you track back from that one company saying that one thing, which is a very strong and important goal. And suddenly you have a reinvention of vast parts of manufacturing industry across Europe.
1: Oh my god, I haven't yeah. thought about that. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And that has a geopolitical dimension because yeah. if you then step back and say, well what's going on about US and China at the moment, well a lot of this is about who is going who is going to be the not just the economic superpower yeah. of, of of this decade and beyond, who is going to be the technological superpower. And the technological superpower in large part will be the the, the country or the bloc that has the the solutions that provide the same standard of living that we have now, the same, all the things we take for granted, like being able to jump in the car and drive where we want, but with zero carbon impact. Yeah. Yeah? So in other words, that one company saying that one thing, when you sort of trace it through, what does it mean for national economies? What does it mean for um, uh, ancillary industries? What does it mean in kind of macro political terms? Mm. Actually, it's very profound. And the reason why it will happen is because that one company – I'm picking on Volkswagen, but I could pick on anybody – that one company has basically said, well, if we don't do this, we won't exist. Mm. Because every car on German roads will be Chinese by, you know, sort of 2035 if we don't do this. So they're going to do it. But in order for them to do it, they actually need government to do a bunch of stuff. They need a whole bunch of other companies to join in. And then other other countries will also follow suit. All the major economies in Europe will follow suit. And then before we know it, just from that one example, most of Europe is decarbonised in automotive
1: yeah. nine years from now. That's quite a big goal, isn't it?
0: Yeah. But but it's it's a real thing because yeah. if they don't do it they won't exist.
1: And it's totally doable. It's, well, I'd,
0: whether it's totally doable, we'll see. There's there's a lot of lot of uh, obstacles to overcome. There
1: but, are, but I, you know, I, I But it's not
0: altruism. It's, it's not, not CSR. No, it's, it's not. not CSR. It's not greenwash. It's not purpose washing. It's you know, if if it's a company like sense, that, right? well, it's more than that. If a company like that does not do this, it will not exist. Yeah. Their core market will be awash with companies from another country that have the answer when they don't have the answer. Yeah. And you can see the same in every sector. You can see all industries grappling with the same mm. challenges. And the leaders in those industries standing up and saying, you know what, by this year, X year, we will be X. Yeah. And that then has a forcing function back through time, through their supply chain, through others that they rely on, infrastructure providers, whatever it is, That achieves a really important outcome and they're saying those things because they say they know that if they don't do them they they'll die Mm. as businesses it's real it's it's not it's not something that's a nice to do it's not an offset over here while they get on with the old
1: way of doing things that's quite a motivating factor isn't it yeah um matt as a takeaway finally what would be one piece of guidance you'd give to pr and corporate affairs professionals who are starting to work with clients in this area
0: I would say any conversation that begins with we need a purpose, Yeah, you need as gently as you can, either in-house or with a client if you're an advisor, say, could we start the conversation in a different place, please? Can we look at all the all the things that you need to fix as far as the world is concerned about the harms that you do or that they perceive that you mm-hmm. do, out of which process and out of which conversations will emerge a pretty strong sense of what is the good that you do hmm. yeah but if you begin the conversation where it's all about just we need a purpose please can you give us a purpose my, my experience is that you end up in a place where you have a strap line okay and you have an, an advertising theme and it just doesn't wash anymore
1: yeah okay Very strong point to end with there, Matt. Thank you very much for joining us in the Echo Chamber. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.